The scripture this morning is found in the book of Psalms, chapter 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread, and who do not call on the Lord. There they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his peoples, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Thank you, Scott, for reading scripture for us this morning. So I've recently been uh, teaching an apologetics class at a church nearby. Uh, And one of the questions that we've been asking in that class is uh, the classic question, how do we know that there is a God? It's a question that philosophers have been debating uh, for centuries. And one of the main arguments for the existence of God is what's known as the moral argument. And so the moral argument is the idea uh, that all people recognize some sort of moral code in their lives. They believe that some things are right to do and other things are wrong to do. And the fact that people have the ability to think in moral terms points to the existence of a God who must have created us. But the issue is that from person to person, you'll find disagreement about what is right to do and what is wrong. When those disagreements happen, people begin to appeal to something other than themselves to find what is right and what is wrong in. And so the Christian would say that What is right and wrong is defined by God, but uh, the atheist who doesn't believe in God would still have to point to something to define right and wrong for themselves. Usually, they would say that humans get to make that decision for themselves. And over the course of history, as atheism became more popular and the ideas of the Enlightenment rose to prominence in the 19th century, Uh, The thought was that as that happened, as religion declined, that uh, the evils of religion would cease and that there would be less warfare and conflict in the 20th century. People left to their own devices would be able to figure it out and our society would be more peaceful. All it takes is a simple glance at the 20th century to realize that that wasn't the case. (laughs) Two world wars, uh, more other wars after that, genocide uh, all over the place. The 20th century actually marked more violence, not less, and non-religious groups were uh, no different in their acts. The lack of religion has not improved the moral attitudes of people should come as no surprise to us when I say that people are capable of some pretty terrible things. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about 
The Wickedness of Man. That's the title of today's sermon. And we're going to be talking about how the only way for God to undo the terrible things that men do when they're left to their own devices uh, is to not leave them alone to their own devices, but actually to come and be with them. Not only to come and be with them, but to pay the price for their actions because they can't do that on their own. So let me pray, and then we'll take a look at today's passage for this morning. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, through the fact that we as people struggle with the question of what is right and what is wrong. We thank you that we don't have to define that for ourselves, but the fact that you have defined that for us. We thank you for that this morning. As we continue in this series in the book of Matthew, I pray that this would not just be a story to us, but that this would become real for us in our lives, that we may see Jesus for who he truly is. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, Matthew, chapter 27, should be on page 704 of the church Bibles. And so we've been spending the past two weeks in Matthew, chapter 26, Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 27, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 31 of Matthew 27. If you grabbed a bulletin on your way in, uh, you'll see on the sermon outline that today's passage is split up into three parts. We'll take a look at Jesus, the condemned one, in verses 1 through 10. We'll take a look at Jesus, the substituted one. Verses 11 through 26. And then finally, we'll look at Jesus, the mocked one. Verses 27 through 31. Uh, Let me read the first 10 verses, Matthew 27, uh, verses 1 through 10. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this money into the treasury since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. And so this morning we're continuing on in this series, and we're following the story in which we're leading up to the death of Jesus on the cross. And after the events of the passage that we looked at last week, after uh, the night, Jesus' prayer uh, in Gethsemane, 
his arrest and his trial. Uh, He was then disowned by Peter. Uh, After all of that, the morning comes, and Jesus is bound, and then he's handed over to Pilate, who is the Roman governor at that time. And Judas, who betrayed Jesus, he, he sees all of this take place. He sees Jesus bound and taken away, and he's immediately struck with grief over what he has done. His act of betrayal seemed like a good choice in the moment. But now that he sees Jesus in chains being led away to his death, uh, we start to see a change in Judas's demeanor. Judas realizes the weight of what he has done. His sin has caught up with him, and his remorse is overwhelming for him to bear. And so because of Judas's revelation, uh, he moves to undo his actions. He wants to uh, give his 30 pieces of silver back to the Jewish leaders. He confesses his sin. He realizes what he has done. And he's trying to get the Jewish leaders to take away the evidence of his guilt, the money. But the Jewish leaders, they don't want it. They say... This is Judas's responsibility. And it is Judas's responsibility. But these are the people who are supposed to help the Jewish people atone for their sin, right? These are the priests, these are the elders, but they turn Judas away. And so Judas goes away to hang himself as the story goes, and it's truly a tragic end to his life. And it's really an incredibly important interaction for us to understand between Judas and the Jewish leaders. Judas has tried to undo his betrayal, but he can't. Judas doesn't have the power to undo his own sin. He tries to do the only thing that he knows how to do as a Jewish person to atone for his sin. Go to the Jewish leaders but then they turn him away. You see, there is someone who can atone for Judas's sin, but that person is being taken away in chains to the cross. I think Judas could have gone to Jesus, and if he truly repented of his betrayal, I think Jesus would have forgiven him. But this is how we don't, or we know that Judas didn't fully understand who Jesus was. Judas doesn't go to him. Instead, in Judas's moment of despair, he chooses to end his own life. Judas takes the wrong way out. He chooses death when he could have chosen life in Christ. And so the Jewish leaders, they they do get something right. They realize that they can't use Judas's money for anything. And so they buy a potter's field to use as a burial place for foreigners. And this actually goes on to fulfill what Jeremiah the prophet had said. Once again, as we've seen, God has taken the evil actions of men and used them for his purposes. He uses them to fulfill Scripture. Judas expressed remorse over his actions, but he did not repent of them. This is an important lesson for us this morning. 
It is possible to express remorse over our sin, to feel bad for the bad things that we have done, but it's not the same as repentance. It is not enough to try and pass the remorse that we feel over our sin over to other people who may have been partially responsible. It's not enough for us to try and give the reward for sin back. We can't do that. When you look at your life, you begin to take into account all of the bad things that you have ever done. You have one of two choices, really. You can let those things drive you to despair, like what happened to Judas. Or you can let those things drive you to the one who can forgive you of your sin. The one who can free you from your sin. And that's Jesus Christ. The people of Israel, they have another choice before them. Let's keep reading. Move on to our next section for this morning. Jesus the substituted one. Let me read verses 11 through 26 for us. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. And so we jump back in the story to Jesus, who is now before Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate begins to question Jesus about who he is. But Pilate's questions are different from the questions that the Jewish leaders had asked of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. 
Pilate asks the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus gives his typical response that we've seen from him. You have said so. See, for Pilate, he is less concerned about Jesus's being God, and he's more concerned about Jesus's being king. It's a difference in worldview between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders, they're interpreting who Jesus is in a spiritual way, and they're offended by his claims to be God. This Roman leader is interpreting Jesus in a governmental way. He's offended by Jesus' claims to be king, because for Pilate, there's only one king, Caesar. But Jesus is both. Jesus is both God and he is king. And Pilate is really amazed by how Jesus has handled this whole situation. Jesus' lack of reply is probably so different from what Pilate is used to. The people that Pilate would typically deal with would fight tooth and nail to get themselves out of the positions that they were in. They would defend themselves desperately, but Jesus doesn't respond at all. Now Rome, in order to maintain peace in the Jewish area that they were ruling over, they would actually take part in the festivities of Passover. And because they were benevolent rulers, they would release one prisoner as a part of the festival. And so here, Pilate presents another prisoner, one named Barabbas. And this Barabbas was well known. Barabbas was a revolutionary, from what we know about him. He had taken part in the Jewish insurrection against Rome. He was a murderer. He was a robber. If there's anything you need to know about Barabbas, it's that he was not a good person. So Pilate, knowing that Jesus has been falsely accused, he's giving the Jewish people an opportunity to let Jesus go free. So he puts the two up against each other. Which one do you want? Jesus or Barabbas? The Jewish leaders have been working in the crowd. They've persuaded the people to choose Barabbas and to have Jesus crucified. So Pilate asks, which one do you want me to release? The people say, Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Then Pilate asks, what shall I do with Jesus? The people say, crucify him. Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He asks why. Why should he crucify Jesus? What, he, what has he done? And the people can't answer that question because Jesus hasn't done anything. And so they just yell again, crucify him. So Pilate gives up trying to reason with the crowd. Things are getting a little rowdy. So he washes his hands, signifying his innocence. But Pilate, he's not truly innocent in this situation. He comes very close, actually, to recognizing who Jesus is, but he never quite affirms him. See, Pilate's act of washing his hands doesn't make him innocent. The only person that can forgive his sin is Jesus, who has just been chosen to die in the place of a criminal. Pilate is trying to pass off the responsibility for Jesus' death over to the crowd, Just like Judas tried to pass responsibility off to the Jewish leaders. See, no one wants the responsibility for killing Jesus. They keep trying to pass it off. 
No one wants the blood of Jesus on their hands, except for the crowd who says his blood is on us and on our children. It's actually an incredibly ironic statement because Jesus' blood would be on them and on their children because of his death on the cross. His blood would be spilled for them so that they may be saved. At this, Jesus is flogged. He's taken away to be crucified. So in this story, the question becomes, well, what does this mean for us? Who are we in this story? A lot of the ways we're like the crowd. We see Jesus and we see Barabbas up there, side by side. Jesus, who is innocent of sin. Barabbas, who represents sin. And we, like the crowd, so often choose Barabbas. Yeah, I want Barabbas. Give me Barabbas. Because if Barabbas can get away with sin and evil, then maybe so can I. The crowd has been influenced by something outside of themselves. There have been voices that have whispered in their ears, choose Barabbas, don't choose Jesus. In the same way, we've been influenced by the world, influenced by Satan himself, who wants us to choose sin over our Savior. We're also a lot like Barabbas in this story. We're the ones up there with Jesus. We're the ones who have done bad things. We're the guilty ones. The passage that Scott read for us, no one has lived a perfect life. All have sinned, but Jesus has taken our place. See, Jesus went to the cross so that Barabbas wouldn't have to. This is the gospel right here. Jesus takes the death that Barabbas deserved, the death that we deserve. And Jesus goes instead. And he says to us, you're free to go. What did Barabbas do to be set free? Nothing. Jesus went in his place. It's what Jesus did for him that set him free. Jesus has done the same thing for us. Each and every person in this room, Jesus died to set you free. doesn't matter how bad you think you are. doesn't matter what kind of bad things you have done. Jesus went to the cross in your place. And Barabbas shows no hint of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for him. At no point do we see Barabbas turn around and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. But we don't have to do the same. We must recognize what Jesus has done for us in order to set us free. Because if we don't recognize it, there's nothing stopping us from going right back to living the life that we were living. We must recognize that Jesus substituted himself on the cross for us. We must realize 
It should have been us up there. We must accept what he has done for us. We must live how he lived because of what he has done for us. Let's move on to our last section for this morning. Jesus, the mocked one. Let me read our final verses, verses 27 through 31 for us. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. And they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And so Jesus is uh, taken away by the Roman soldiers. They gather around him. They begin to mock him. And this mocking by the Roman soldiers is a mirror of the mocking that we looked at last week with the Jewish leaders. So Jesus was um, mocked by not only the Jewish people, but also here by the Gentile people as well. And so Jesus is enthroned, really, by these Roman soldiers, but not in a loving way. Their mockery is out of hatred. See, the Romans hated the Jews. They loved opportunities like this to treat them poorly. And now they have the proposed king of the Jews in front of them. This is quite the opportunity to pay him the ultimate disrespect. So they give Jesus three things. They give him a scarlet robe to signify the robe that a king would typically wear. They give him a crown of thorns to signify the royal crown that a king would wear. They give him a staff to signify the royal scepter that a king would hold and rule with. And then they kneel before him. They say mockingly, Hail, King of the Jews. And Jesus doesn't respond to any of this. They're not actually recognizing him as king. The punishment, the the mockery, the embarrassment just keeps coming for Jesus in this story. But it's really an ironic situation for them to enthrone Jesus in this way. For the Roman soldiers, this is fake. It's all fun and games for them. For Jesus, it's very real. And little do they know that Jesus will be enthroned, but not in the way that they expect. Peter in his sermon on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, would point to this happening. He would say this, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. 
exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, right now it seems like the Jewish leaders have won. It seems like the Roman soldiers have won, right? They get to mock Jesus in this way. But not long after, and this is a bit of a spoiler, Jesus would be raised from the dead. And Jesus would be enthroned as king. And when that happens, Jesus was raised to the right hand of God, and his enemies are now footstools for his feet. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. He has all power and dominion and glory, and his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, and he will reign there forever. The throne of Rome, who these Roman soldiers serve, would soon be destroyed, right? Caesar would soon pass away. He would not live forever. The throne of grace will never be destroyed. And Jesus will never pass away. He was raised to eternal life so that we could be raised there with him. And so this is where we arrive back at where we started this sermon. Mankind is capable of some pretty terrible things. We can all agree to that. And here's an example, right? The mocking of Jesus is heartbreaking. Jesus doesn't deserve this. He did nothing to deserve this. He did not deserve to be crucified, but he went in our place. See, Jesus' death on the cross is the worst thing that has ever happened. It's the worst thing that mankind has ever done. Putting a man who has never sinned on the cross to die, and not just any man, but the Son of God. See, the worst thing that has ever happened happened to the best person who ever lived. And that happened so that the best thing that could ever happen could be available to us, too. Jesus' resurrection from the dead would pave the way for us to be raised to eternal life with him, something that we don't deserve. But it's available to us because Jesus went in our place. doesn't matter the terrible things that you have done in your life. Everyone has a chance to receive this best thing. But only if you truly see what Jesus has done for you. Only if you accept him. And only if you begin to follow after him. So the question really, from this passage, will you accept what Jesus has done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, this morning what seems like a a dark story, this isn't something that we particularly like reading about, the death of Jesus on the cross as he goes. But God, we can rejoice in a story like this, 
because we know how it ends. So may we be reminded of that this morning. May we be reminded of our place in all of this. Reminded that we are like Barabbas. We have all fallen short. But God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to this earth. Thank you that he died the death that we deserve so that we could have eternal life in him. May we rejoice in that, not just this morning, but all the days of our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.